This podcast is brought to you by Rupert Neve Designs. Chances are most of your favorite records from the last five decades were made using company founder Mr. Rupert Neve's legendary equipment, and Rupert Neve Designs carries on his legacy of classic sound for engineers, musicians, and listeners of today and beyond. Learn more at rupertneve.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Signed to her first record deal at 16, Sarah Jarose has been continuously putting out critically acclaimed records and touring ever since. Never mind that she did a large part of that while attending college at the New England Conservatory. Over a decade since her first release and numerous Grammy and Americana Awards nominations and wins, Sarah's latest record, World on the Ground, is yet another document of her prodigious songwriting, playing, and singing. Online publisher Jeff Stanfield caught up with Sarah from her home in Nashville, Tennessee. Enjoy. Eyes wide, heart inside, like a gamble coming down. All around the brain was a sweet refrain. Keep following the sound. You were signed when you were a senior in high school, but then decided to go on to the New England Conservatory. Obviously, you didn't have to do because you already had a music career happening. Um, why did you think it was important to go to college for music? Um, a, a few reasons factored factored into that decision. Um, I mean, I would say maybe the biggest reason was I had been sort of in my teens. I had started attending different camps and music festivals around the country um, in in the summers mostly um, for music, and it was kind of the way that I was able to meet other kids my age who were into kind of this new acoustic folk, bluegrass, whatever you want to call it, music. Um, and, you know, because up, up until then, I was, you know, in Wimberley when I was playing, I was largely playing with people that were much, much older than me. And so it was kind of this fun realization to be like, oh, there's other, there's other ki- like people my age who are into this music. And basically when I was you know, turning eight, turning 17 and kind of deciding what was going to happen next, um, because I had already signed that contract um, with Sugar Hill, it was becoming clear that a lot of those friends that I had made were moving to Boston. And kind of there was sort of this mass migration happening of like, young new acoustic folks heading to Boston, whether it be for Berkeley or New England Conservatory, which is where I went. And so it was kind of to like, follow that that scene which I had become so um a part of and um and really it felt like it was the exciting place to be um musically at that time but also I think you know both of my parents were teachers and there was always an a great importance placed on going to college and um and so I think that factored into it as well and and I think personally, just to kind of, I think I realized what a crazy thing it was to have signed a record contract at 16. Um, it seems even crazier now looking back. Um, and I think I just wanted to preserve a little bit of myself by not not just going straight out onto the road, like becoming a road dog at 18. That, that just didn't, and it's funny because I was touring pretty non-stop regardless in college but it's still sort of psychologically kind of carved out this little 
four-year space for me where it was like, no, I still have this time for myself to learn and kind of become who I am. And then I'll go on the road full time. Yeah. And so were you actually making records during that period? You must have. Um, and and you were touring. So like you just said, so how did that work with school for you? I mean, were they were they aware that this was happening for you and just accommodating in that way? Uh, they Yes, they were. They were definitely aware. Um, it's like it, it almost when I think back on it now, um, I almost don't even know how it all <laughs> happened at the same time. I've um, it was definitely some of the busiest years of my life um, because I really didn't, I wound up not missing a whole lot of school for it. I, I really was, NEC was pretty adamant about not just letting me be gone all the time. Um, it's interesting because some of my, my Berkeley friends, like, I think they were a little more lenient in that regard of like, okay, you guys can, you know, go out for a few weeks on tour and come back and we'll catch you up. But um, I don't know, that wasn't, I didn't find that to be the vibe at NEC. Like, it was very much like, no, you need to be here. And I think the most consecutive time I ever missed was a week for, I went and did the transatlantic sessions, um, which Jerry Douglas and Ali Bain kind of put together. It's over in Scotland. It's a really great TV show on the BBC. But uh, yeah, like I, I, yeah, I made um, Follow Me Down and Build Me Up From Bones. Both, both of those records were while I was in college. And I was just really uh, had to be super strategic about pl- basically I was gone every weekend playing gigs and, and any um, breaks from school, like, you know, winter break or spring break was all spent either touring or um, or flying down to Nashville and recording with Gary. I mean, how much studio experience did you have prior to making your first record? Basically, n- none. I mean, um, you know, maybe the odd sort of overdub session here or there in Austin growing up, but really I was just, it was my first experience in the studio, um, and it was so incredible like I mean just what a gift to be able to work with Gary right out of the gate (laughs) Gary Pachosa um and especially on that first record so yeah I signed with Sugar Hill when I was 16 and then we we didn't start making the record until probably a full year later um and yeah I just had so many so many guests so many heroes come in and and play on that record and it was at it being my first time in the studio it was really kind of an incredible gift of a way to do it and just see these people come in and track and observe them and be like oh this is how you do it (laughs) you know yeah I mean what were some of the things specifically that you learned I mean you you were in the studio with some of the best musicians in the world Bella Fleck Jerry Douglas etc you know like that's quite a different experience than probably a lot of people have making their first demo or whatever. And this, that was not the case. <laughs> no, no. I mean, just, you know, like I didn't know studio technique or, or culture even where you, you come in. I mean, I guess in, in Gary's studio, cause it's basically just one control room and one tracking room. It's, it's pretty small. Um, largely the way we would do it especially on those early records was record my part um record my instrument and then I would overdub my vocal on that and then we would kind of 
just it, it was almost like Gary would say, what's your dream list of who you want on these songs? And he'd just call them up and, you know, it, it seemed like a few hours later they, they were over and there and overdubbing their part. So it was kind of, it wasn't like a everyone's in the same room tracking all at the same time. It was kind of like piecemealing things together on those early records. But because of that, it was really special to kind of get to see like, oh, Chris Steely would come over and just get to watch him and like how he sits at the mic and, you know, just the um, building the idea, you know, say he has a solo on one of the songs, like just watching his brain work and like how he would sort of work through building a a solo over the course of four or five takes, you know, and just, I don't know, I had never experienced that before. And it was, I learned so much from it. And also, you know, harmony singers coming, you know, Tim O'Brien coming in and singing harmony and watching him sing and kind of, yeah, just tweaking it take to take was just such a gift. I learned so much. How did you come to meet Gary and work with him? I met Gary in 2007 at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. I uh, I had been attending the Planet Bluegrass uh, festivals. I started with their festival, Rocky Grass, which is outside of Boulder in Lyons, Colorado. Um, I started going to that when I was 11 because they have, sort of as I mentioned earlier, they have a, a camp or an academy every year leading up. It's the week leading up to the weekend festival. And so a, a lot of the people playing at the festival would teach during the week so I, th- I think we found out my dad found out about it initially because I was so obsessed with Nickel Creek when I was 10 and he noticed that they had taught at Rocky Grass and so he was like well this could be there like I said they were both teachers so they had the summers off and so we drove up from Texas to Colorado and and it just became this really special thing musically but also for my family and um and yeah, so eventually, a couple of years later, we started going to Telluride every summer, and um, somehow, it, it really is kind of amazing, Craig Ferguson, who runs those festivals, gave me, really, I, I had no record at that point, I was 16 years old, um, and not really even a touring band, um, he, he offered me a set at Telluride that summer in 2007, so... It was totally just just one of those like, all right, this is a huge opportunity, like, let make the most of it, you know. And I I wound up having Mike Marshall and Ben Solee play with me for that set, and it it was really magical. And um, that's where Gary Gary was there at the festival, and he he said <laughs> he told me later that he was actually walking out, he was leaving um, the festival grounds, and. Um, he heard my voice and he had to come back and and yeah he approached me after the set and he uh he basically invited me to Nashville the next month to see his studio and record some demos and yeah that's that's really it started all started there that's amazing i mean you know it, it sounds like you know one of these stories like um sort of unbelievable right like a set of circumstances that were just amazing and you got lucky but there there is something to be said for you being prepared and being open and having um you know a personality uh and and willingness to to have some success 
For sure, for sure. I mean, yeah, because <laughs> it, it is e even easy for me to sometimes look back on that memory and feel like that was the beginning because it did feel like a huge turning point in my life. Um, but yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Like I had spent, you know, basically the previous five years straight just practicing and playing gigs around Central Texas and, and just sort of nonstop chipping away at it. Um, yeah, and then it's it's sort of when that when that hard work meets an opportunity that kind of even can scare you sometimes. I think that I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Like the things that scare you a little bit are good. And if if you stop feeling that way, I don't know, I it just trying to sort of almost put yourself in those situations that challenge you and kind of kick you up to that next notch. Um, those are those are the special moments, and I feel like that's where transition and growth happens. Your songwriting has developed in a way where I sometimes hear the you know little elements of of pop music popping up or a pop music reference or something that's a non traditional harmony. Um, there's a tune on the new record where I was like, God, that that almost sounds like Alice in Chains. That's so weird. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was just, you know, I've gotten some Nirvana, um, yeah, comments some Nirvana. as well. I think yeah. maybe the chords on the chorus of Johnny have reminded some people of Nirvana, which I'm, I, that's like the greatest compliment anyone could ever say. Yeah. I was just curious about your, you know, what kind of music that are you listening to and, you know, how does that blend with sort of your natural instincts as a, you know, more traditional Americana songwriter and artist? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's sort of I've I've found it. I definitely feel that that first record of mine was, yeah, like as you said, very rooted in sort of the the bluegrass tradition because that's that is the tradition I grew up in. I was attending a weekly Friday night bluegrass jam in Wimberley, and and um, you know the festivals that I was mentioning going to every summer were. I mean, they were, I wouldn't say traditional bluegrass festivals, but they were bluegrass festivals. Um, and yeah, so that, I think that certainly molded me as a musician early on. And, and it comes through and as you said, it's always going to be a part of me and it sort of comes through in my voice and, and all that. But I actually haven't felt like even from the second record on like I haven't felt like I've been making bluegrass music um no, really no, no. since since that um first record you know um but it's it's just funny how the term gets thrown around um and it's, it's sort of like what does it actually mean as a word and a tradition and I having studied the tradition I, d I definitely don't feel that I've been making that music for a long time and and um I, I don't know that's it's I think that it's such a great I feel so thankful that I came up in that world, though, because it, it is such a great launching pad. Um, like, it, it just, the, even the format of a bluegrass song, like, where you have the chance to sort of improvise a solo, because there is an improvised element of the tradition, I think that sort of is what kind of allows so many people to take it to different places. And then that's where the word becomes kind of obscured, you know? I think of, like... Punch Brothers or Newgrass Revival or Hot Rise, these bands that are sort of in that world, but outside of it as well. Um, and so, and in terms of what I listen to, I also feel like I haven't, 
I mean, you know, I, I always check out bluegrass records um, occasionally, but I would say I mostly listen to non-bluegrass, and I, that's kind of been that way even since almost high school, where, like, I mean, in high school I was getting into, like, Wilco and the Decemberists, and, I mean, obviously, like, the the heavy hitters like Joni Mitchell and Paul, Paul Simon and Bob Dylan, but... Even now, I I find myself largely listening to like Billy Joel and um, Mark Cohn and kind of the definitely not bluegrass <laughs> musicians. Um, and yeah, so I think maybe my my songs that I've been writing have sort of reflected that, reflected what what I'm listening to um, at the moment. Yeah, and and so much of the writing and one thing that has remained very consistent is that they. Uh, so much of the, your your songbook has like such a wisp, wistfulness and sort of longing to the music and the and the recordings. I think there's a really nice marriage of tone and um, you know what do they call it prosody. You know with with mm. with the way that the the way that the the, the music is captured is very um, it's perfect. You know, it really captures the 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 tone um, and the feeling of the songs in a way that I feel like a lot of music, great songs, great singers, all that stuff. Sometimes that that misses, and it's a it's a lost opportunity. It doesn't mean it's not a good record or worth listening to. You know, how much thought is going into that in terms of how you are actually capturing your songs? Uh, well, thank you. First of all, um, I mean. A lot of thought. <laughs> it's funny. Um, I think when I when I think about it now, I think some of my happiest moments as a musician have been in the studio. I just, I think that's my, ha- yeah, that's my happy place in terms of just the trying to find that balance of control, but also freedom, or not freedom, but like, also letting the moment, not letting control take over the moment, I guess, and and finding that balance in the studio is a challenge that I just, I love, and I, I just find so much joy in that. And again, I mean, I think it goes, goes back to Gary um, just feeling so fortunate to, to work with him. I think it was important to, in terms of finding my voice in, in recorded music, um, it was important for me to work with Gary for those first four records in the sense that he's Gary is an engineer and a producer and he's not actually a musician. You know, that that was sort of the biggest difference in with this new record where John Leventhal is one of my favorite musicians on the planet. And so we're actually it was a much different process in the sense that we're collaborating musically, you know, we're actually playing together and and writing together. And, um, you know, with Gary, it was like he was always very involved in in terms of hearing, you know, specific instruments, like what kind of textures would be good for a song and who to pull in for that. But I think it was cool for me to sort of be the musician in the room and him to be the engineer and it allowed me to really sort of sculpt my detailed vision of, of how I wanted those songs to sound. And um, yeah, I, I think that was that was important. And it might have, had I worked with a musician right out of the gate, 
I don't know if my voice would have come through as as strong or as clear um, on like I, I think that makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really interesting um, collaboration when you you know, if somebody has a real acumen for for tone and feeling and really there are producers and engineers like that that really um, it's almost better that they don't have the music musical background because they can really appreciate it as a listener and I think that that's that's one way to make a record and if the people in the room have that synergy it's a pretty amazing thing like um and it sounds like that was the deal with Gary for sure going back to the tradition of bluegrass I mean I think one of the things that really stands out is the emphasis is put on performance and playing yeah and I watched um uh, where was it? It was you playing at Grimey's, playing this new record. I was blown away again by just how on your voice is and just how great your playing is. And it really reminded me, like, that that is a real benefit of come, coming up through a, a culture of, you know, jam sessions and playing and really being, you know, it's it's very very much like the jazz tradition in like in New York at two in the morning or whatever. Um. So so that's one thing. I was like, man, I wonder how many of these songs on the record were first takes. How are you recording it? I mean, you talked about the early records being you know instrument overdub vocals and then have folks come in and and make additions. How about these last couple records? Yeah, it's um it's been a very different <laughs> process, especially especially working with John. Um I loved I, I think I was actually there was something so cool about being really detail oriented on those first records and just I mean it's almost like I think it <laughs> it sometimes came too close to like really perfect perfecting especially in terms of like my vocal performance but I was still learning how to sing in the studio like I don't now it's like working with John the way he has his studio set up I sort of like to like I almost like to describe it as his spaceship control (laughs) room um like everything is just plugged in and ready to go he has you know his bass his his bass that he's played on like every recording he's ever been a part of is just it's plugged into the board um the vocal mic is set up his guitars are all around scattered around the room and so it's this really i mean i truly when we first started working together um which was i guess in may of last year may of 2019 um I was under the impression that we were making demos. <laughs> and, and so we were just, it was like a blank canvas and we were just throwing ideas and, you know, throwing the paint at the canvas and seeing what stuck. And and a lot of, as you said, I mean, so much of this record is first takes because like like I said, I, I was under the impression we were making demos and then we would listen back and be like, damn that sounds good you know like why why would we why would we if that's if we're listening to it and it's moving us why would we really bother trying to go back and just make a quote-unquote better version of what's already moving us in terms of the recording and and so it was just this really fun um 
fun process. Where, whereas before, like I said, I think because, you know, Gary, in terms of like setting up and engineering and sort of going going in, the process was very like, all right, I'm going into the room now to record my vocal um, and sort of having this preconceived idea of exactly how I wanted it to go and exact before even going in to record, you know, writing down what all instruments were going to be on each song and it's it just being very sort of premeditated. This was the opposite of that with, with this record, this new record. Um, just sort of, I purposefully wanted to be more open in the moment and um, just because I've, I've dreamed of working with John for years um, and I wanted to be open to his process. Like I, I didn't want to go into it you know, having this great opportunity to work with one of my heroes whose whose music musicality I respect so much, I feel like it would have been wasted to go in and tell him, all right, this is what we're doing, <laughs> you know, and not not have that space or that room to be led a little and to grow. And um, I really feel like that's that's what happened. And it was just, yeah. So, so a lot of the vocal stuff would be him saying like, why don't you double that vocal? Like, just go over, go do it right now. And, and almost like, him pressing record like before I even had a chance to sit down in the chair and just really quick quick ideas and not overthinking and yeah it was we basically did that with every song and it was really fun yeah I think that there's some idea out there that it's not good unless it's difficult or like a laborious process um Mm -hmm. and it takes it takes a lot of maturity and 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 kind of guts to be like well yeah that was easy and that was good you know you don't Totally. No, but I, you're so right. I definitely caught myself a couple times in the process. I would, you know, I'd leave, first of all, John has a very sort of strict schedule that he keeps, that he kept to when we were working on this record where I would, we basically would just work from noon to six. And whenever I was in town off tour, those were our hours. And it, it, it kept my ears really fresh. Um, whereas in the past, you know, I've been in the studio just for f- days on end, you know, never leaving, never giving the ears a break. And um, you kind of get into this headspace where you start doubting. And, and like you said, you almost have to, you feel like you have to make it harder than it is. <laughs> um, and yeah, there were a couple times with this record where I, I left the studio just so overjoyed it seemed like every day and I was like is there should this should this be harder (laughs) like this is this is so enjoyable you know um so yeah that was it it was just such a fantastic experience kind of from day one um I really learned so much working with John you know as you continue to make records um hopefully that that will continue you know that for everybody that's making records that you can still find that joy in it and not have it become um a chore it feels like from an outside perspective that you are willing to sort of jump in the stream and and let it take you where it goes a little bit thanks well i um, think i think that actually is related that that sort of willingness to jump in to, to the moving river is is definitely related to our earlier conversations about coming up in the bluegrass world and and kind of that that's where you'll be sitting in a circle and you know your solo's coming around and it's you're you're sort of like all right I'm my solo's coming up and you're almost counting down and 
especially I I don't know I I feel like I had so many experiences being the only girl in many jams and you know it it was it could be scary er, early on you know just having trying to work up the guts to just sit down at a jam of heavy heavy hitters at a festival backstage you know that it, it it was scary often and but but just taking that chance um I'm so glad like it just in terms of young musicians coming up I would just say take those risks take those chances because though that's where I learned you know that that that's how you grow those like I said earlier you know those moments that kind of scare you a little bit um so I'm I feel really thankful for for those opportunities and and I I do think it's it uh, it affects me now even even today talk a little bit about how what that transition from being a fan to being a, a collaborator and co-conspirator is like yeah oh man um well i mean first of all i've always felt i i don't know that it's as um or or maybe my, because i've I, I don't know my sense is that it's a unique thing in the acoustic world in the acoustic music world that that can even happen <laughs> that there is that sort of ability to you know even like I was saying about Rocky Grass where it's like you go to the academy and the teachers are the musicians who are playing at the festival so you know when I was little it was like oh my god you know I'm getting to hang out this entire week with all my heroes and they're just hanging out you know they're not you know r- rushing off in their limo or <laughs> you know hiding out backstage they're just people and I always found I just respected that so it it was such a sort of heartwarming realization that so many of these musicians that I grew up just being so obsessed with and you know inspired by were just good humans at the end of the day yeah and were willing to you know especially being a young kid were willing to spend time um with me and people like me and and even hang out you know like I remember I think it was the very first there was this camp in Santa Cruz that um the mandolin symposium which David Grisman and Mike Marshall started and Chris Chris Thiele was a part of the, the first couple and I remember so I must have been 13 at that point um just peak you know just obsession with nickel creek you know there and i wasn't alone in that like all the kids at this camp we all felt the same way and you know there was like a camp concert at the end of the week and um we wound up writing this like five or six of us wound up being in this ensemble with chris as our leader and um we wound up writing a song with him and you know most i feel like in most of these camp settings the teacher would kind of do their duty for like the two hours that they had blocked off in the afternoon and then they'd run off. But Chris just literally hung out with us until like two in the morning often, jamming, hanging, you know, no, just, I mean, that that was really, really special. And it was so inspiring because it sort of, that made me want to work even harder, you know, to to kind of continue that. And so I think so much of the um i just i feel like i owe so much to my heroes for for that openness and that willingness to just be human 
in addition to being great mentors and teachers. Um, and so, yeah, like, I mean, it totally, to get to work with Chris on Live From Here and to get to be in a band with Sarah Watkins, it, it it's incredibly special and um, feels very full circle in a way. And I, I, I don't know, but it also feels... It, it feels right because it, it happened naturally over kind of, you know, a decade, you know, a decade's period and of time. And um, and so it, it was it never to kind of slowly become friends with them over the years. It never felt forced or anything. It just sort of happened in this natural way where we were jamming or making kind of making music together in impromptu settings and then realizing like, oh, we really want to work on music together you know we have this musical connection and then that sort of leads to having a having friendships and and really caring about these people in a in a deep way and it's um I definitely don't take it for granted it's it's very special these are some pretty weird times um you're you're not able to go tour music has been basically canceled <laughs> it sucks you know, what have you been doing with this extra time at home? And, and, and I wanted to ask you if you did any home recording and demoing and experimentation with recording at home. It's funny. I, well, I mean, I guess I've done, a f- you know, back, back in April and May, especially, I think there was sort of this, this rush to just fill in the the space and and sort of compensate for for the loss of of the tours and and sort of I feel like everyone was just putting out so much video content um sometimes kind of for the sake of it and not because they really had anything to say um and I don't know I think I've been I've been I personally haven't been doing any writing or home recording yet uh because I just finished this record and it just came out and I, I definitely as a musician kind of find myself working in cycles, creative cycles where, you know, it's, it takes a lot of, a lot of yourself, you know, if you're doing it right, I think you're, you're putting all of yourself into whatever you might be working on at the time. And so that's sort of been my year leading up to this moment, you know, really, pouring myself creatively into this record and these songs and um so I I feel a little bit like it's it's funny timing because now I have all this time at home but I'm a little bit creatively drained at the moment and um also you know like I as a as a human and a person I've I'm this is very uh different from what my life normally looks like so I'm I'm finding it difficult to even find inspiration of what to write about because I'm not out in the world you know norm- normally I'm observing and sort of it, it, yeah my day-to-day is just completely upside down from what it normally looks like so with that being said I I have felt e- I feel like even in the last week or so I felt the the pangs of of wanting to create and wanting to write and that's always a fun feeling to observe you know because I think at least for me I'll, I'll sort of always have this sense after maybe this is a cliche thing to say but like after a record is done sort of like well I I don't have anything to write about and I don't know when I <laughs> when I ever will again and um it's it's a fun moment when you kind of feel the the upwelling of creativity um and ideas coming up and so I would say that that's as of the last week that's just starting to happen but 
Yeah, I don't know. I've I've been sort of wary of just filling the space, filling the online space be, for the sake of it um, in this time. Like, I, I want to make sure that I'm still... I'm still putting all of myself into, you know, the the stuff that I create um, in the same way that I would have pre-COVID. You know, I don't want to just be cranking out content, um, yeah, for the sake of it. So I'm I'm trying to be aware of that and um, and and still be tasteful and and honor my creativity in that way. But it's yeah, I mean, it's totally disorienting and it. <laughs> it's hard. I mean, it's really hard to not to not be on the road right now, especially in light of having a new record and, and being pumped to play all this new music for people. I mean, was your move to New York sort of a, a, a move to kind of give you some new things to write about and look at and see and perspective? Or was it more just like, man, I got to live in New York City? <laughs> um, well, both, I guess. I, I've, I visited New York... Um, for the first time when I was 15, it was actually for, this was like pre, it was the very beginning of the Punch Brothers. Before they were called Punch Brothers, they were briefly called Detention's Mountain Boys. <laughs> um, and they premiered a piece that Chris had wrote at Carnegie Hall. And my friend Ben Solee, the cellist who plays with Abigail Washburn. Um, Love Ben. Ben's the best. Um, who And I was sort of running into Ben at festivals and we were playing music, he actually had an extra ticket and invited me to go see that show. And so it was a big deal. I mean, I was only 15 and it was the first time I got on a plane without my parents and, you know, went went to the big city and and had this amazing experience seeing the show, but also just being in New York for the first time. And I, I kind of told myself during that trip, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to live here someday. <laughs> um, and then when I finished college in Boston, similarly to how there was sort of the migration to Boston, um, when, you know, when the four years were up, a lot of those same people were kind of like, New York's the next, you know, we're going down to New York. And um, so, yeah, I was sort of following the scene, but also just following my dream of having always wanted to live there. And yeah, I, it's, it's obviously an incredibly special place. I, I can't believe that I just moved last week. There's things on undercurrent that, you know, I, I feel like we're a little more city hip than some of the previous records. Yeah, I mean, I think it was, uh, yeah, that, well, first of all, it was the first record that I made, you know, not also being in school. <laughs> um, so there was kind of this sense of like having a little more freedom just in time of, of not... Whereas the, you know, the previous three records, I had been in school for all of those. So, so there was this little bit of like urgency of having to get them done within a certain timeline. And with Undercurrent, it was kind of the first record that I was like, okay, I have a little bit more time to explore. Um, and, you know, lyrically, that, that was the first record that I wrote when I moved to New York. And so obviously very impacted by that. And and yeah, I think it it also was a departure from the from the from the other records in, in the sense of it kind of was where I first started doing more live takes and um yeah, actually a lot of those songs were kind of first take, you know, Jacqueline 
because there's a there's a bunch of songs on that record that are just me and a guitar you know Jacqueline yeah. early morning light um everything to hide take another turn like I'm pretty sure all of those were just first or second take me because because whereas in the past I, I would sort of record my instrument and my vocals separately from each other I kind of went in to Gary being like no we should try to do this at the same time and so yeah and I think that kind of opened going through that with that record opened the doors with world on the ground to really sort of go full on into that um just let's just kind of play these songs and and uh try to record it as we go and and one other thing about the new record that stands out to me is that your previous records do not have a lot of drums on them and this one actually has a fair amount of drums on it even if it's brushwork or whatever but um was that like a conscious thing was that a john thing what um it was totally conscious and also john i mean i mean i it's funny because with undercurrent um i was actually very anti-drums on Undercurrent um, to the point that Gary and I were had a kind of a big major disagreement about it on that record um, because he was he was really hearing them on a, on a not even all the songs just like three or four songs and but we had already sort of recorded everything without drums but we wound up trying it and then I just had to really stick to my guns and say like no I this is a uh, I, I, I don't hear them on this record because I didn't write them hearing drums in my brain. <laughs> like, I, I just didn't... It wasn't a part of the writing process even. Whereas this World on the Ground, I was hearing drums on every song in my head. And I think one thought I had that might have factored into that is, um, you know, Leading into this record, I had done a lot of playing on Live From Here with Chris, which, you know, I've never toured with a drummer before, and that was really my first chance in a live setting on stage to play with a drummer consistently was on Live From Here. And so I loved it. I, I've had, and obviously Chris gets like the best musicians in the world, so I'd be playing with Matt Chamberlain or Ted Poor and um, all these heavy hitters on drums. And I think that sort of, inf- that really kind of infused into my brain. And um, and then that combined with so much of the music that I was listening to when I was writing World on the Ground, like James McMurtry and Nancy Griffith and Sean Colvin, um, you know, all drum sort of centric music but in like a tasteful sort of acoustic way um I was definitely hearing hearing those sounds in my head when I was writing these songs and then John just sort of I mean I was just so that that was almost the thing single-handedly that I was like okay I know John is the right guy when we were kind of getting sounds initially and when he played drums on whatever I think it was Eve actually Eve might have been the first thing that he was like, I'm just going to go in real quick and like lay some drums down just so you can hear what I'm hearing. And it was like exactly what I had been hearing in my head. So yeah, that was, that was kind of a fun departure for me on this record. You have to arrange the music differently to have the propulsion that perhaps a drummer would provide. So it's, it's, um, I mean, both are great. They're both, they're, it's all good. I, I just, 
it's interesting that you've gone without for so long, you know, for the most part. You know, it makes the record different. It doesn't make it, you know, another chapter. It, it makes it more of like a new book. Cool. One more question, um, and I'll let you go. Um, you've had a hand in a lot of the production of your records, um, even if you've worked with somebody like Gary or John. Uh, you've obviously had this vision. Do you have any desire to produce other bands or other artists? Yes, a hundred percent. I it's no one, nobody's ever asked me that before. I'm really thrilled to hear that question. Um, yeah, like I think it's actually a recent realization of of something that I would be really excited to do um, at some point. I mean, and it's funny because even during the during making the process of making this record with John, he. I don't know. I felt like he was almost mentoring me. He, you know, we were making the record and we were focused on that, but there would like about halfway through, you know, I would hear something and he'd be like, Oh my God, I didn't even hear that. And he started being like magic years, magic years. (laughs) And he was like, you, you're going to do this someday. Like you're going to, you're going to produce. And, um, I don't know. That was very inspiring because I haven't really had anyone say that before. And so I actually, like I'm the first to say I really am I don't know much of anything when it comes to gear and technology and I I mean I'm just being at home like during during the lockdown like I've just started learning how to use GarageBand <laughs> so like I'm a total novice when it comes to all of that side of it um but I was inspired to sort of try you know moving forward like I want to learn way more about that aspect of it um because i do yeah i feel like i have a a lot to say in terms of building building sounds and building a vibe in the studio and and um mostly at the end of the day i just find it to be so fun like like i said at the beginning like i you know i love live performance and you know that's a whole other side of it and i'm definitely missing it right now but i think I think being in the studio is is my favorite aspect of of being a musician. Like I just love that time to create. Um, so yes, that, that's a long winded way of saying yes. So many great producers don't want to be down in the weeds dealing with like cables or like chasing down a sound or running in and setting a mic. They really want to focus on on the music and the vibe and creating the the atmosphere and you know being helping the the music come along and so it sounds like you jump right into that you know yeah yeah that was definitely i think sort of what i was saying about the way that john had his studio set up um where pretty much everything he's got it dialed to where he knows kind of the things he he would normally reach for as as a producer and a musician and I sort of love that where you're just sort of surrounded by your tools you've got it kind of dialed and obviously have the flexibility to make changes if the song requires it but yeah I think that would be a dream to someday sort of have that have that set up and and sort of um be able to record my own stuff or record other people you know yeah goals They'll try to take you for a ride And they'll money all the good you've got inside And they'll twist your heart until it's black and blue 
for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. <laughs>